everyone, and welcome to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and along with my co-host, Chris Kay, we discuss and dissect our favorite music, heavy metal. So sit back, relax, pop open a cold one, and let the debate begin. Welcome back, everyone, to Debating Metal. I'm Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and along with my co-host, Chris Kay, we discuss and dissect the hard rock and heavy metal bands we all know and love. Each week, we also discuss some bands and albums you may not know that you should definitely be listening to, as well as giving you our big four on various bands, albums, musicians, etc. This week, it's episode 23, and we have part two of Odd Album Out. We picked out some more albums that really stick out like a sore thumb in our favorite band's catalogs. That's right. The bands we talk about each week have put out some of the most amazing and classic albums of all time, but then they release a real head-scratcher that keeps us talking even today. And when we did part one a few weeks ago, we talked about Motley Crue and their self-titled album, Motley Crue from 1994, Deep Purple, Slaves and Masters, Aerosmith, Rock in a Hard Place, Megadeth, Risk, Queensryche, Frequency Unknown, and Testament's Demonic album. So for part two, we're going to determine whether another set of albums deserves a second listen or they should just remain a bad memory. And later in the episode, you wanted the best, you got the best, with this week's Big Four Rush songs. And we've also got more rusty metal and freshly forged picks for you. But before we get to that, let us review. Last week on episode 22, we went head-to-head with the Metal Gods solo bands. It was Fight versus Halford. If you missed last week's episode or any of the other ones, you can listen to us on all the major podcast platforms. And don't forget to rate us or leave a review. And we definitely want to hear your opinion on these incredibly important matters. So send an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or go to our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages and leave comments or message us and tell us what you think. Now, Chris, tell them what our big four was last week. Last week, we picked our big four Rob Halford non-Judas Priest songs. That was kind of an easy one for me, but I think it'll be a lot harder when we do Judas Priest songs. Check out this list and all of our previous lists on social media, and let us know what your picks for big four solo songs from the Metal God are. Well, cool. Um, So this week, Rusty Metal. I am picking Merciful Fate. The Merciful Fate EP, the Nuns Have No Fun EP, whichever you want to call it, it is their first release that came out in 1982. Um, So I'm I'm diverging a little bit away from the 40th anniversary stuff that I had been working on so diligently. But this is the debut release from Merciful Fate, and um, it's, it's hard to say if you can consider Merciful Fate pioneers of the black metal scene. Because the black metal sound is so different. It's nothing compared to what Merciful Fate sounds like. But the corpse paint that King Diamond uses would later become a fixture in the black metal scene. You know, and since Fate is from Copenhagen, it lends more credentials to the black metal connection. So it's a little weird because they don't sound like black metal at all, but they look like black metal. Well, there's some musical themes that are you know, kind of the same. Correct, right. Um, the music is completely different, you know, in my opinion, but there, there is definitely that tie-in between the themes and the look. So one of the songs that's on The Nuns Have No Fun slash Merciful Fate EP is a song called A Corpse Without a Soul. That was part of 
the medley that Metallica recorded called Merciful Fate that came out on their Garage Inc. covers album. So there's a, a strong Copenhagen-Denmark connection between those two bands. Pretty cool. What do you got for First Forged? All right, so for Freshly Forged this week, we have uh, Best of the Blessed from... Uh, it's a greatest hit album from Powerwolf. They are a power metal band from Germany. It's uh, a band I've kind of kept up with for a while. And this is a lot of new recordings of their old music. So 2020 versions of, of a lot of their best songs. We Drink Your Blood, Army of the Night, Demons Are a Girl's Best Friend. Some real fun titles there from, uh, from a power metal band about what you'd expect. But I really like the new versions that, that were recorded. So it gives you another option, a fresh take on, on some of their old material. And it's a good starting point if you're not familiar with the band because it is a lot of their really you know, stronger hits. And uh, it gives you a, a good uh, scope of what they've done over their uh, career since 2003. Be sure to check that one out. It's a really cool uh, re- release of these, these older songs. That's cool because maybe in, in a future episode, if you ever, if we ever do a part two to bands that re-recorded their music, we'll throw them in there. Yeah, <laughs> that, that should be pretty cool. All right, so on to this week's topic, which is odd album out, part two, and uh, we've got part two. Part two. We've got uh, <laughs> we've got six albums that we're going to talk about. And the first one is Van Halen and Van Halen 3. Yeah, that's definitely the odd album out when it comes to their catalog. You know, much like all these other albums that we're picking, there's there's obviously something significant happened in this one. This one was Gary Sharon was the vocalist, and that really made a dynamic change. You know, sound-wise, it's Van Halen. You know, I mean, because Eddie is Eddie, and Alex is Alex, and... Uh, Michael was there because they he, they allowed him in basically, but he barely. But he only recorded three tracks. I mean, he he was barely on the album. Right. So you know, the 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 biggest change obviously was the vocals. But what I gotta say is, uh, I was listening to it for a little bit before the show, and the song "One I Want," uh, which was one of their singles off the album, to me that sounds like Gary trying to do a Sammy Hagar impression. I mean, it comes across really, you know, there's a little bit of that Sammy rasp in there. I mean, he sounds like Sammy. I, I almost mistook it for a Sammy song. So Yeah, I, I mean, I can definitely see that. He has a very similar tone. I think that's one of the reasons that they wanted him in the band. But to me, I just, I didn't like his fit in the band. And we've talked about this before where maybe they should have toured before they, they recorded an album. And then really built up the chemistry because it wasn't just lightning in a bottle like it was with Sammy. So, unfortunately, it was just it was probably not the right chemistry at the time. However, there are a couple good songs on there. Uh, I, I do like Fire in the Hole. Um, I mean, I don't go out of my way to listen to it all the time, but it's it's a pretty decent song. And uh, the, the, the last song on the album is How Many Say I, which is actually sung by Eddie Van Halen. And uh, it's it's interesting to hear him singing a song, at least. <laughs> we just leave it at interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of the album. It's unfortunate for Gary, because Gary is such a good singer. He's such a talented uh, musician, 
vocalist, artist. You, there's nothing you could take away from Extreme. They've had a very sec- successful career, and they had some really good music, and he's the vocalist behind it. But in, in this particular case with Van Halen, it just did not work whatsoever. Yeah, it didn't seem like there was chemistry there when when you you brought that up earlier. It just seems like they went and got someone that sounded like Sammy, and reminded them of Sammy, and they put out an album because basically now Eddie had someone that he he could put basically he can control. Excuse me, he finally has someone he can control because David was such a strong personality, and Sammy was his own man the whole time. Eventually, that the, the chemistry that they had because he was his own man was the same thing that led them to their relationship to fall apart because Sammy's like, you know, he was basically strong-willed about certain things and Eddie was like, no, this is my band. You know, between that and drugs and alcohol, things always won't go sideways. And it's funny that he took that mentality that that it's his band because he, I mean, he didn't even come up with the name Van Halen, even though it is his last name. <laughs> that, was, that was a David thing. So his... His ego definitely grew over the course of the years. You know, I, I get that completely, that idea of, of having somebody control, but that doesn't that doesn't really build that animosity. Like, I mean, think of think of Fleetwood Mac rumors. That's that's um, you know, it's not in the metal field, but it's a great album. And it, the reason it's so great is that there's so much um, there's so much backstory to there's so so much going on behind the scenes. There's animosity. There's there's all these feelings happening. And sometimes that builds some of the greatest uh, stories in some of the best albums uh, because there's there's so much there. This to me almost feels thrown together. And that's just too bad because there are good licks on it. There are some really interesting things, but it just doesn't have chemistry and it doesn't feel like a Van Halen album. It's not, it, there's no party element to it. The maturity that was in balance has kind of been lost and it's, it's almost like there's no real direction. Yeah. And, that, and I think a lot of it had to do with basically Eddie spinning out of control. So it's unfortunate that it came down to that. Sammy did come back for a temporary amount of time. Obviously, we know that David came back for, I think, two two trips back to Van Halen. And Michael Anthony was eventually escorted out the door in lieu of Wolfgang. So it's, it's, it's definitely a, a, a Van Halen affair. And unfortunately, it didn't work this time. But we have it. And I, I'd say... It's one of those that we may not want to keep in the catalog. No, I agree. All right, so uh, one that I kind of kind of feel like it's it is a weird blip on the radar because it's a completely different singer in the middle of one singer's run in the band. But I I like the album overall. I think it's got some some pretty good tracks on it, and that's accepts eat the heat. They had David Reese on vocals rather than Udo Dirk Schneider. It's um, it's it's a pretty decent album. Even when when Udo came back into the band, he still sang some of the songs and actually performed backup vocals on one of the tracks on this album. Udo's a weird guy when it comes to that because I mean he he's kept that relationship. You know, obviously he's he's there's accept running through his blood. He kept that relationship all the way up to the point when Mark Tonio joined the band. Then he kind of distanced himself, even though he's gone to see the band a few times while you know while they were out in Europe. He definitely has distanced himself from Wolf Hoffman. 
and Mark, you know, he, he's just like, now he's more of a fan than he is a former bandmate. But to his credit, he did kind of, you know, throw some background vocals to this. I'm not a fan of this album. I think um, this album, the biggest thing that this album suffers from is it's trying to be American. It's trying to be pop metal, that 80s metal, almost kind of like a hair metal sound. They try too hard to cross over. And I think that was part of the reason why Udo was upset to begin with when he left. I guess them trying to say, let's go back to what we used to do is what brought him back. But for this album, I think it didn't, in my opinion, it didn't work. It wasn't accept. They may have been good songs, but it wasn't accept. Very similar to what we talked about in part one with Molly Crew. Although it didn't work the same way, the songs were not Motley Crue, yet they put the name Motley Crue on it. And what? and I agree with you in that respect. I, I I don't think this is a great except album, and I don't even necessarily think it's it's a great album. I think it's a good album, and it's got some pretty good tracks on it. But yeah, definitely, it doesn't sound like your typical except affair. I do really like the song XTC. And Generation Clash has become kind of a staple. Uh, they even did a sequel to Generation Clash uh, with this Generation Clash 2. But uh, yeah, it, I think it's got some pretty strong songs on it. And then, but it's got a lot of, of points where it's just not that exciting. I think Chain Reaction to me is the, is probably the better the best song on the album for me. It's a pretty uh, good track. I like that one. Generation Clash to me just sound to it. The vibe that I got from it was like it was a leftover Ramstein song that they said, oh, we don't want this, so you can have it. That's the way it felt to me. It's not horrible. It's not, you know, it's not a terrible song, but to me, it's, you know, again, it's not accept. Even though Ramstein's German, just like accept are, but Ramstein's Ramstein and accept are accept. So, and that's what I liked so much about when accept got back together and they brought Mark Tunio, the producer, Andy Sneep went out of his way to to show except this is what people like and this is the sound that people like and they when they did blood of the nations man did they nailed that sound down including all the way to the background vocals so you know they can do it i think i'm glad they went back to their roots in this case it just didn't work they were just trying to cross over too much and it failed on that. And it failed in, in general. Because it was a commercial failure. David Reese was eventually escorted out. And Udo brought back in. So, yeah, and, and honestly, that's the way it should be. Um, at least at that time, Udo is the the, the sound of, of that era of, of uh, Accept. And I mean, I prefer him to be in the band. It's almost like uh, with... Uh, Ripper Owens with Judas Priest. I like those albums, but the guy who really belongs in the band is Rob Halford. I agree, but I like much like you like the new Queensryche with with Todd Latore. Mm-hmm. I like the new Accept with Mark Tornillo. You can't take away the classic songs that, that oh, they yeah, did with I, Udo. I mean, I wasn't saying anything about that. I was talking about that era. Oh, that of era. The band. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the Mark Tunio era of this band is is prolific, and they're good. You know, and that's that's what I like about it. I mean, they they're, they're put out a bunch of albums. They're good albums. They're not they're not stinkers. Um, they've got some quality songs on there, quality production, and you know they they they've really reestablished themselves very much in the same vein that Queensrÿche reestablished themselves. 
Oh yeah, and Mark has found his place, and he he belongs in that that era of uh, the the current era of accept. Whereas David Reese was a blip on the radar. You know, it's it's not he he doesn't have an era per se. It's it's kind of <laughs> like Sammy and uh, Dave, and with Gary Sharon. Right. Gary Sharon's just a blip on the radar. Whereas if you say Van Halen, both of those guys are synonymous with that band. Exactly correct. All right, well, the third album that we're going to speak about tonight, we've kind of spoke about this particular person a couple times tonight already, and, and, and last week, a whole episode. Rob Halford, Judas Priest, Nostradamus. Not a fan. I'm just not. I, I tried to listen to it today, and, and it just, I mean, I almost crashed. <laughs> it was just put me to sleep. It's just, I don't like it. And it's not because of the interludes. Because, you know, every, almost every other so- song is an interlude, one or two minutes long, some sort of piano thingy, or, you know, some sort of guitar licky thingy. That's not the problem I have with it. The problem I have with it is that the songs that are the songs are not good songs. They almost go nowhere in, in most of the cases, to me, in my opinion. Um, <clears throat> I like the story. I don't have a problem with the story. I have a problem with the execution of the songs that tell the story. There are a few good highlights, in my opinion. You know, Prophecy, the, the basically the first song in the album, is a really cool song. They, uh, deeper into the album, you know, Pestilence and Plague is a decent song. And then Persecution, later on, towards the end of the album, another good song. I guess all the songs with P in them are the good, <laughs> are the good songs. But the interludes, I mean, that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I could deal with the interludes because I know that they're not real songs, per se. But this, the, when it comes down to the songs, the lyrics, it just doesn't do it for me. So I could not disagree with you more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of this album. I like concept albums. I mean, we've, we've kind of mentioned that before. To me, a, a concept album is an album that that's all you do when you listen to it. You're not doing anything else. You're you're almost hunkered down in a, in a corner and just listen to the album because it's telling you a story and you're you're going through a journey. I could not disagree more because I really love. I mean, you you mentioned prophecy, which you liked, but I I love that song. It's great. Um, the Four Horsemen is a really cool transition to War. War is a really cool song. Revelations, I really like that one. Pestilence and Plague, I, I like it a lot more than you do. The, I think all the all the, the the major songs, I think maybe it's because I, I grew up playing like Nintendo games, uh, Castlevania and stuff like that, where um, <laughs> you, you listen to the music along with the, the game you're playing, and, and it's kind of building a story behind it. It's it, I used to listen to soundtracks when I was a kid, like I had Star Wars soundtracks, etc. And I, I feel like this is um, kind of that same thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to it more as a symphonic concert or even even like a play than, than just an album with catchy songs. And I just really enjoy this album. It's not an easy, just you know, simple digestible song. I mean, digestible album. It's more than that. So it's a whole experience you have to to kind of take in. I, I I I think this is a great one. But that being said, it is the oddity in in Judas Priest 
catalog because it's nothing like anything else they did. You know, and I can see why it would turn people off. I, I mean, personally, in my opinion, the reason why it turns it off is because the songs aren't good. But that—that's obviously you like certain songs, and that's fine. But I don't have a problem with concept albums. I like Pink Floyd's The Wall, and that's a double album. I like Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime. I don't have a problem when it comes to concept albums. But to me, I mean, Queensryche, yeah, not every single song on there is good. But to me, every single song on there is better than than the stuff that's on Nostradamus. I, I did. Yeah, but it's it's a different type of album too because Queensrÿche's uh, uh, Operation Mindcrime is still individual songs that are still telling one story. This almost feels like one long opera, and that's that's what's kind of different about it. Okay, I can get that, and and the interludes are are what segue from one song to the next. That's great. Like I said, I don't have a problem with those. I mean, you could throw a whole album of interludes, and I don't care. You know. Uh, in between every song but my taste in in especially with judas priest it just doesn't fall into that 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 song to me the songs don't there's not a lot a lot of catchy hooks there's no you know because i've always talked about the hook the hook the hook there's not a lot of hooks on it and then on top of that quite honestly even the even the riffing is not that great and that's why i like prophecy prophecy is a cool song because there's some cool stuff to that song you know um and it, it just got weaker from there. But that's my opinion. Your opinion, you like it. You want to keep it in your catalog. I actually own it. It sits in my catalog. I, I'm not going to go anywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's not something I'm going to pick up very often. It's it's. I think it's a great album. And it's it's just such a different experience for them. So, again, it it definitely sits as the sore thumb because it's not – like anything else they did you i mean you can you can say that the ripper albums are kind of the same way because they're much darker tone but they're still they still fit within the theme of everything well they're metal Um, albums i mean yeah this is definitely them exploring this is definitely them trying something new you know more power to them i gotta say this though this album quite honestly almost put Judas Priest out of business. That That's the way I feel. I think if it wasn't, they, they, it killed a lot of momentum that they had. And it, it, it slowed them down. And they had to really build back up. So when they went on that Epitaph tour, which was saying, it was supposed to be saying goodbye, it was supposed to be the farewell tour. I think that's, the, I, I mean, for lack of motivation... I think that is the reason why they decided to, I don't want to use the term fool the fans into saying that they were retiring, but they needed a gimmick, almost like a wrestler. They needed a gimmick to get them over. And it was the, you know, the final, the final tour, the epitaph. I I don't feel that way at all. I think they were really genuinely committed to quitting. um, And, and what ended up happening was they kind of changed their mind towards the end, and KK said, "No, I'm I'm done." They they disagreed with a lot of of what you know was going on going forward, and uh, they decided to bring in Richie Faulkner, who who really breathed a lot of of life into them because he's a much younger guy and he contributed a lot musically 
to the band as far as writing songs, etc. So it gave them a second wind. I don't, th- I, you know, I I think this was them as the original, not the original band, but you know, the the classic lineup that was still around. Um, they had gone through some different drummers, etc. This was them winding down as that group, and then in, injecting that new life into the band. That younger guy really gave them a second breath. And I don't think that getting the younger guy was going to be the plan the whole time. I so, don't either. You know, but so so that's kind of. I mean, I don't think, in a way, because I say this band, this, this album almost broke them, and it broke them in a bad way. It, it it ground them down. It was kind of like, well, shit, we have this fantastic idea, this concept. We put this album out, and it basically fell flat on its face. At this point, it's like, all right, what do we do? We can't even sell out a, a, a club with our name. What do we do now? And it was like, I guess it's it. It's over. So let's let's do a tour. So I don't know if it was necessarily the idea. I, I maybe maybe I should walk that back. The gimmick may not necessarily have been the wanting to purposely do a uh, a farewell tour but I think that was the result when they felt like shit they couldn't do anything else but do a farewell tour because they couldn't really sell out anything and it kind I, of but I think there was some dissension in the band that was kind of causing that too and, and that happens when people work together for years and years and years sometimes there's those differences of opinion that just don't they're, they're not healable at that time like hopefully someday we can see the band kind of patch things up with KK and not necessarily reform with him, but, you know, patch things up because they were friends for such a long period of time. Um, but I think I think this was kind of the end of that that era. And and luckily we got some some new albums that are really entertaining uh, mm-hmm. for, you know, the, the new generation since uh, Richie's joined the band. Oh, yeah. I mean, these past two albums have been great. So. Yeah, Nostradamus was an, was the end of the classic lineup of Priest. It's unfortunate, but f- out of it came out some uh, came something really good when Richie joined the band. I mean, Redeemer of Souls and Firepower, especially Firepower. Firepower is an amazing album. Uh, so they 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 built that momentum back up, and that's and, you know, and they're still they're still going for it because that, I, they were beginning to work on a new album, uh, and then you know things kind of went sideways all right that brings us to album number four for the evening and this is another point of contention between you and i (laughs) metallica saint anger this one definitely you're the one guy that likes it yeah i'm the one guy (laughs) this definitely sticks out like a sore thumb in metallica's catalog that's for sure um so here's the thing I'm I I am a Metallica defender. I have you know I make no bones about it. At the same time, I admit when certain things are not great. Now, that being said, Saint Anger, there are a lot of problems with it. I'm gonna admit that. Okay, there are a lot of issues with Saint Anger, but I don't think it's a horrible album. Like Van Halen. Three does not have it barely has anything that's that's passable as a, as a decent song. You like eat, eat the heat, I don't. You like Nostradamus, I don't. At least I can sit there and say, you know, with Saint Anger, you know, Frantic is a good song. 
Saint Anger, the production of it is is bad. The whole production of the whole album is bad, but the song itself is good. It's not great. Frantic's a better song. I like some kind of monster. I just think there's too many parts to it. And the unnamed feeling is one of the most emotional songs that that James Hetfield could possibly sing. There's a lot of deep seated anger in that song. But production wise, I mean, I I I, I will concur with just about anybody it is a pathetic cut and paste job it you know it's it's it's, to me it's unlistenable Uh, the production is just so bad that any good moments were overridden by the the garbage quality of the, the the production and it just makes it really hard to listen to the album it just there are good moments like you said uh, the unnamed feeling is very emotional it's a very good song i think james has always been my favorite member of metallica he his contributions to their music have always been my favorite um but there are there are parts of this where i just do not like the lyrics i don't like the a lot of the stuff that that kirk brought to the band as far as his lyrics um, I I don't like the movie that's associated with this album. Uh, there there's really nothing that I that I like about this album other than the album cover. <laughs> what didn't you like about the movie? It took away a bit of the mystique of Metallica, where they were you know these tough guys that were metal guys, and they just they just came off as kind of whiny. Like, and I don't mean that with with James because James was dealing with his personal problems, and it just it just some of that stuff doesn't need to be vetted to the audience, and I I just really feel strongly about that. Some of that stuff just needs to be left at home. But if it, you know what that being said, if if somebody was dealing with those personal problems themselves and gained inspiration from that that because. I, you know, I've I've felt down at times in my life, and I've seen things that that help me get through them. If that's if that's the case, then more power to them. I'm 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 happy that people are able to to gain that. For me personally, it just made me kind of like the band less. Okay, I, I I mean I can understand that. You know, I approached the movie like. Yeah, I was glad to be seeing. I was like, man, I'm going to see a, a two-hour movie of my favorite band. But yes, there was. It, it hurt to watch it sometimes because it was like, whoa, what's up with that? But there, I there were times, and I'm sorry to interrupt, uh-huh. but there were times where I felt like they weren't giving James enough. And and I don't mean Robert because Robert was so new. It did. I mean, it just is what it is. Like he's barely in the movie, but. It, mostly Lars, and I think it was because they've been friends for so long that their their connection has been, you know, their their best friends. But I, but it was almost like they weren't giving James what he needed because he was going through those problems, and it was almost like, oh, this is a headache. You're going through rehab. Oh, geez, you know, like he he's going through legitimate problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think. Um there's there's always that side of somebody who's not personally going through it they're just the outsider that's involved in it mm-hmm. that will never get what's happening deep inside that person on on the surface we all know that that James is you know he grew up a christian scientist you know or his family did uh you know watched his mother pass away you know without health care and 
you know, so he had a tough childhood, and, and that comes across in a lot of his songs. You know, Lars, on the other hand, completely opposite. Easy childhood, got anything he wanted, you know, uh, and, and basically a, a little rich kid, you know, and, and he still is a little rich kid type of person. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he, he couldn't really connect with the problems that James was having. And that, and that makes the dynamic that they have in there pretty interesting. So yeah, it was. I, Lars is the is the antagonist for the movie. That's for sure. And later on, it became the uh, the doctor. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I think what it all boils down to is, and we all know it is that the drum sound is terrible. It was a bad decision. If it, and we've we've heard some of those songs in other recordings where they sound better. So. I I just have a hard time listening to it and it, and I can't justify for me I just can't justify giving it a listen again. I, I mean, like I said, I totally understand that. You know, it it is a tough listen. When I first re- read the reviews from from the the the, the uh, music journalists that were given a chance to listen to it, I thought, well, cool, you know, quote unquote blast beat. That was ridiculous. Whoever said that? Um, I don't put a lot of stock in in uh, legitimate, and I'm using quotations here, like Doctor Evil, <laughs> legitimate <laughs> uh, reviewers anymore. But you know, they're so paid; they don't have legitimate opinions anymore. But that was the thing, like like with this one, like you, you saw, like in the movie, you see it go backwards. You know, you you the album was obviously already out. So you see who the reviewers are in some cases. Some of them are legit. Like like the guy from Rolling Stone, I could give a shit what he says. Because he, he's he, to me, he's definitely one of those guys that are bought and paid for. But when you see a, a kid who's got, you know, paints their fingernails black and they wear, you know, they're a goth kid. And, and I don't think they're being paid to, to give Metallica a good review. Oh, no. You know, I mean, yeah. There's, there's so many YouTube reviewers... Um, they're in, in tons of social media formats that they're not being paid and they're just giving you their legitimate opinions, much like we are right now. Right. And, and those opinions I can take much more stock in than, than uh, the, the, the gaming magazines to, or not magazines, but websites are the worst to me. They're just, they're just garbage now. Oh, I, and I could, I could see that and understand that too. Yeah, I don't like looking at the magazine ones because, yes, there, there's there's some sort of influence there. Bottom line is, again, you know, when you you know, break down certain songs in the album, because certain songs are like, whoa, dude, what is what what were you thinking? You know, there are some really good highlights. Totally overwhelmed by the horrible production of the drums, because the good the guitars sound cool. But, you know, obviously seeing the movie, you find out, well, they had an argument about whether they should do guitar solos or not. You know, that, that was a dumb idea. They, sh- they needed uh, guitar solos. terrible. Take away the one thing that Kirk does well. T- take away the, the one thing that Kirk does well. And, and then on top of that. Like, I, like, I think that sounded a little harsh because he, he is, you know, he's a decent guitarist and, and you know, he's a, he's a good guy. Absolutely. I've, I, any interview I've seen with him, I, I've really liked him as a person. Exactly. And there's nothing, I mean, he's the glue that holds them together because he was the one in between basically Lars and, and, and James. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the one thing that he's essentially up to that point, the one thing that he's paid to do is 
put guitar solos on Metallica albums, you know, yeah. on Metallica songs. That's his job. Uh, Bob Rock opened that up a little bit, and he, uh, you know, got James to allow him to riff on the album because up until the Black album, uh, or actually up until Load, you know, including the Black album, all all Kirk ever did was put down a lead guitar solo. He did not play the riffs. Mm-hmm. which is weird because in, in concert he has to play those riffs so why not let him do that but I guess it was a sound that James and Lars were looking for but Bob Rock got them to say hey you know let him play his, his riffs you know let's make that part of the Metallica sound which they've incorporated that since then and, and it works it, it was just to not allow him to do solos is exactly what he it, it ends up being. It dates the album. It says you're in that particular time period, and it was it was a bad move. There was lots of things about that album that was a bad move. Do I like the album? Yes. Is it their their best? No. Is it their worst of the list of albums that have the name Metallica on it? Not Metallica and other people. <laughs> it, it, it to me is not there. It is. It comes in, and I think that that's their ninth studio album. It comes in number nine. You know. Yeah, I'm, I'm to answer those same questions. Do I like the album? No. <laughs> do, <laughs> do I think it's their best album? No. Do I think it's their worst album? Yes. <laughs> so, all right. Well, um, that being said, I think it's time to move on to uh, Kiss with uh, music from the Elder. Kiss, music from the elder. Okay, I I like that album. I'm one of the few. Like like Saint Anger, <laughs> I'm one of the few that like that album. Paul Stanley hates it. Doesn't want anything to do with it. You know, he disowns it. I I will take the ownership of it if I can get I, th- I think he disowns it because it wasn't successful. But I, I think that's unfair. I don't. I personally don't think it's an amazing album, but I, there are moments that I like on it, and I can see where it's you know it's a. It, I see what they were doing with it. Yeah, and that's you know? a concept album as well. Yeah, I like it because again, I can I can decipher individuality within all the songs, even though they're all supposed to link together. To me, songs on an album like The Oath, I, A World Without Heroes for, for being a slow song, Dark Light from Ace Freely, that, that song, those songs are good songs. Yeah, Dark Light's probably my favorite on the album, yeah, to be with, honest. Right. With or without The Elder, with or without the, the very slick production, those are good songs. Now, you throw in everything around it and obviously the album drags everything down as a whole. It, you know, it, it's very few bands can get away with such a dramatic shift in music and, and, and continue to maintain their success. The Rolling Stones are one of those few bands that, you know, have been able to maintain their success and, and have changed styles so many different times. But Kiss just, it didn't work. You know, Kiss was a hard rock band, you know, a heavy metal band, if you will. They were not whatever that was in 1980. <laughs> in yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I, I tend to think if this, if a lot of concept albums, not just this one, but I think if you had some kind of 
backing to it, like music videos for every song or something like that, where it tells a story and you're getting more coverage in that way. I think it would have been very interesting to see. And what I mean is the reaction of the crowd, kind of. You know, these kind of albums, it's not easy to promote them because you, you, what are you going to do, go on stage and play the full album and and have sets that kind of tell a story or something? I mean, I think that's about the only way that you could do it that would be interesting because there are songs that just fill the story that aren't necessarily great songs. But I think if they had done something like that where they, and especially a band like Kiss that that uh, is all about self-promotion, I would think they would have done something more to to push this album in a in a creative way outside of just touring. It, it was, you know, I I actually lived through this time period, and they did promote the hell out of this album. They went on a TV show called Fridays and played those three songs. Uh, uh, they played um, the Oath. I believe mm-hmm. it was a world without heroes and I. I know they played I and Oath, but I I don't know if, uh, what the third song was. I'm pretty positive it was World Without Heroes. Could have been Dark Light. Don't remember. But they, I I believe somewhere in there, they realized that the concept for the record, which was supposed to be the movie, wasn't going anywhere. So at that point, it's like, well, what do we do now? You know, well, that's 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 the problem again. Is that they just they went about it in the way that you would typically think of promotion would work, and I don't think that works for a concept album like this. Right. I mean, the wall had a movie behind it. Right. So and that, you, and that you, was this was supposed to have a movie behind it. And, yeah. And, and because it because the albums tanked, you know, and the, the 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 movie never made it off the ground. And I think I don't think that was. All right, let me let me repeat that again or, or restate that. Okay. The album tanked and in conjunction with the fact that the that the movie was scrapped didn't help either thing. It didn't help Kiss and Kiss it didn't help the album. So, but Kiss did their damnedest to promote the crap out of it. I mean, they were on every kid magazine. They were in every rock magazine. They had more photo shoots with Eric Carr and, and, and Ace Frehley with the, their new short haircuts and, you know, both Gene and Paul with their short haircuts. It was unbelievable. They flooded, excuse me, they flooded the media with all these pictures and stories and interviews. <clears throat> they went above and beyond. And, it just didn't help. That's you know, it, it wasn't going to make the album any better. Yeah. Now they did have a top forty hit with "A World Without Heroes." I remember Casey Kasem talking about the song, but even then, that the song just wasn't good, so that they weren't they weren't going to be able to. You know, well, let me get that wrong. Even the song was good. It just wasn't a Kiss song. And that was what people didn't like about it, you know. Yeah, yeah completely. It, it does not feel like anything they released before. I mean, it, it has it has. I'm going to say comparisons. It has tendencies like Beth. I mean, Beth wasn't a typical Kiss song. Somehow mm-hmm. it was, but I guess in in, the, in 1976, you can expect that from a band. I guess you know, it, it's it's kind of different. 
Kiss tried to reestablish themselves as this really, really hard rock band. And, you know, World Without Heroes, it was a single, it was a hit, people liked it, but it didn't, it didn't do for the album what it needed to be done. You know, because the rest of the album wasn't as strong. Whereas Beth was, was a B-side that they were throwing away, people liked it, but there was also strong songs like God of Thunder, Shout It Out Loud, and Detroit Rock City on Destroyer. Yeah. So it's a, it's a big difference. But that, that Kiss album, I mean, I like it. I mean, it's it's great production. It's nice and slick. It sounds good. But it's the songs, eh, not super strong. I mean, I, like I said, I like the songs. I mean, I, I find moments that I like, but overall it's hard for me to just – put the album in and listen to it all the way through. Yeah, and, and then when they remastered it and reissued it, they rearranged the songs to the way that it was supposed to be um, and the way it was written on the original back album cover, which is kind of weird. They put it... The, the back album cover had the songs that were laid out differently than they were on the record. So that, they actually laid it out that way when they reissued the CD later on which is technically what they were supposed to be. Which I think is a better format. It, would, it makes more sense. It, it makes more sense. but as In a storytelling. It, exactly. It makes more sense in a storytelling. But what's funny about it is, is that if you are a, someone who grew up with the album, it throws you off. I mean, it throws me off. To, to, for it to start you know, with the fanfare and, and go into Just a Boy... It's kind of weird because to me, you know, the album always starts off with the oath, but it's different now. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, it, it, the first one, I think they had to push it in a way that it was it was an album album and not necessarily a concept album, even though that's really what it was. But they had to push it in a way that was going to grab attention. And the, now that it's being re-released, I think people have a different awareness of the album and they're you know there's no problem with releasing it the way it was originally intended to be it would be nice if honestly it would be kind of cool if they released it with like two versions and you could you could like disc one would be you know the The and we're talking an antiquated technology but (laughs) (laughs) exactly disc one would be like the original cut and then disc two would be the you know the proper cut yeah i mean i i I don't have it. it's just it's just weird for me you know very similar how like when we were talking about last week with uh halford and how they rearranged the songs for a small deadly space and for crucible i think it's just really weird like why would you do that <laughs> you know yeah. it's like it it, yeah. it seemed fine the first time i don't think you're necessarily going to get more album sales out of it by rearranging it so is it something that you were so annoyed by it the first time that you had to change it? I don't know. Possible. <laughs> I guess. I mean, if you sort of like how Megadeth, you know, Dave Mustaine's like, well, we have to put a new album cover because it's not the one we wanted. This is the original concept. Okay, I get it. Well, well, well let's just be honest. The the original cover for Killing Mode is my business, which sucked. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad they re-released it because the, the, uh, the second version of the cover was much, much better. Oh yeah, the second version was was cool, and then when they released the you know the final kill edition or whatever it was called, they then made a three D dimensional, real life head, and made that the cover. 
he still, even after the second time, he was still wasn't satisfied. <laughs> yeah, he's he's kind of George Lucasing it. He is. He he definitely is George Lucasing it. <laughs> All right. So, Kiss's album. I'm gonna. I, I keep it in my catalog. I'm I'm a Kiss fan. I'm a Metallica fan. I keep that one in there. I don't say throw it out. I think it's just it's a weak album overall. But uh, I don't. I, I think it's worth a listen at least. Yeah, it's worth a listen. That's for sure. All right, on to the finale. So we're going to talk about Rush's first album, Rush. Um, so this is a, a sore thumb for one reason, and that's it's the only album in their catalog without Neil Peart. And what that means for Rush is that their songwriting, which was primarily done by Neil Peart, was done by the band... In, it really just Getty Lee and, and Alex Lifeson. So it's it's a very different experience, even though it's you can tell it's the same band. There, there's a much more simplistic nature in this album, and the drums are, are very different. And John Rutsey's not a bad drummer, but when you think of Rush, you think of Neil Peart. I mean, that's that's he's synonymous with the band. He's such an interesting guy with his his style of playing that it's it's very odd to hear this album how how kind of simple it is in their catalog yeah it's very simple it's very rock and roll you know very yeah. it, it's it's very rock and roll blues um I, I was listening to it a little while ago a couple of the songs and i i didn't know the the, the main well working man is the big song off of that but the song in the mood which was basically one of the first songs that was written by Getty Lee and and Alex Lifeson. That one has a sound almost similar to something off of Kiss's early records, maybe even something off of Dress to Kill or maybe even an Alice Cooper song. Um, has that very simplistic little guitar licky sound, not a heavy, not, not heavy riffing that that you know Alex Lifeson would become known for. You know, with his. I mean, he was not a heavy riffer, but there was some good heavy riffs, and then he had played some really cool, clean guitar. But he was a great... I mean, Alex Lifeson is a great guitar player. Um, oh, yeah. Th- that's one thing about Rush that I love, is that all three of those guys contribute amazing musicality, amazing skill in their instrument, and, and Getty Lee's a really good singer. He, he Yeah, he's, he's one of those guys that has a unique voice, and sometimes you like him or you don't, but... You, there's no taking away from the talent of all three of those guys. Oh, not at all. The the other funny thing about this album that is completely different. I mean, we're talking almost not. It's beyond 180. Is the theme behind this record or themes compared to everything else they did? This one was about I love you, girl. I love you, baby. It was really <laughs> weird, you know, to, to, you know, talk about, you know, listening to Getty Lee talking about, hey, all right, girl, I'm going to get you, girl. I love you, girl, whatever. It's Neil, almost like early Beatles kind of lyrics. Exactly. It's, Neil it's, it's put a stop to that. what you would expect. Yeah. <laughs> Neil's like, now nah, we're not going to talk about girls anymore. <laughs> we're going to talk about freaky shit dude, that no one will understand. <laughs> talk about geometry. And <laughs> uh, tell me about it, man. I think, I think, yeah, so, uh, I, I think um, what did it call? We were looking at the different styles of metal that are out there a while ago, and obviously we were talking about gent music. But there's mm-hmm. something. There was something called like like 
mathematical, like math metal or something like that. In, yeah. where, where the guys, I mean, they're playing like such crazy polyrhythmic songs, but they're all metal based. And that, that, that's what Neil, you know, when he came in, he was like, oh, we're going to do this. We're not doing that low, I love you crap anymore. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it, it, there's so many different themes in what he brought to the band. You know, each album told stories, but a lot of times the, the, the you know, the, the fans weren't in on what he was writing about because they were they were kind of focused on something he was interested in. I mean, there's there's some some uh, kind of progressive elements in all the albums, but there's there's just things like Bastille Day, you know, where it's talking about the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, you've you've got um, space exploration in some of the songs. There's there's kind of Lord of the Rings vibe to some of the stuff. So he's writing music that is very conceptual. And it's very different from this first Rush album, which, again, is, is not bad, but it just feels like it's it's almost a similar journey, but it didn't take as long as the Beatles, which I mentioned before, it, because the Beatles, when they first started, it was I Want to Hold Your Hand and, and songs like that, where it was just very kind of simple and lovey-dovey stuff. And then uh, and then later on, they're writing Come Together. And Helter Skelter. Know, and, and Helter Skelter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean... You, you're not going to take anything away from Rush's first album. I mean, there were some there are some highlights on there, for sure. I mean, Working, Working Man is a pretty popular song no, still. Working Man is a cool song. There's nothing wrong with that song. It it's just the imagine this. You got two two out of three guys are still the guys that remain in Rush throughout the rest of the career, and they I mean talk about stepping up your game. You know, it's no, like tremendously. Neil yeah. came in and said, "Hey, you guys are better players than this." Let's do this. And all of a sudden, it was like a whole new world got opened up to the three of them. And it's like, boom. They became completely different. This is how smart Neil is. And, and not a lot of people notice. I, I, not even Chris Jericho, who's from Canada, knew this. YYZ. The only connection that he made to Canada was that YYZ is the airport code for the, uh, for the Canadian airport in Toronto. Okay, but YYZ, the rhythm that they play in the song is Morse code for YYZ. That is that yeah, is the, so- that is how weird and how deep Neil Peart is. <laughs> it's yeah, it's such a cool concept. And, and it is, it's one of those things that, like I said, that the audience isn't always in the know, but he's creating things that that are that are very introspective often and like i said related to things he's interested in Mm -hmm. and and because of that i think it's one of those things where a lot of times they say you need to to make yourself happy or or you know make yourself laugh like a comedian make yourself laugh and other people will laugh with you and i think that's kind of one of the things here is that like make you enjoy what you're doing and other people will enjoy it as well for sure absolutely it, it goes right along with it. If if uh, if you enjoy what you do for a living, you never have to work a day in your life. You know, and that that that's definitely, you know, the the way Neil Peart approached his lyrics. I mean, it's incredible stuff. You know, and this album being so far away from everything they did in the future, it, but still being such a good album. Yeah, it's it's <clears throat> it's 
if you're a Rush fan and you you kind of neglect this album, it's understandable because it is so different. Um, but at the same time, I think it's it's a, a big stepping stone. John Rutsey was was not a bad drummer, and and unfortunately his health declined, and that's why he left the band. So it, it opened up that channel for Neil Peart to come in and really revolutionize their sound. But it, it's a I think it's an important moment in the band. So. It's definitely worth listening to. There's a few really fun tracks. Um, it's not one that I'm gonna, you know, put in the, the the player all the time and just you know jam out to it. But I definitely respect what they did here. And um, I, there's a few tracks I just I'll always kind of include in my playlist. Yeah, Working Man's always on my playlist. Oh, for sure. All right, cool. Well, that brings us to our big four and. It is going to be big four Rush songs. So you went first last week with uh, Halford. So I'm going to go first this week with uh, my big four Rush songs. Uh, you probably have a lot more to say because my, my Rush songs are very limited. I'm not the biggest Rush fan in the world. You know, I still like, you know, the hits. So my number four Rush song is Subdivisions off the Signals album. That album came out after Moving Pictures. And they had a big video hit for that on MTV. And I really, really got into it. Really, 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 really liked that song. So, number three, The Spirit of Radio. There's just something so cool about that. I mean, listening to Neil Peart and Alex just combining with each other. And then, you know, then all of a sudden, all three of them start jamming. It's so cool. I, I love that song. Number two, Limelight, one of their biggest hits. Really, I mean, MTV put that song over the top, and I, I, I always remember the video. It's, it was a live concert uh, video. Love, love, love that song. And, of course, my number one song, they said that this was the number one song that people air drum to, and that's Tom Sawyer. Love that song. I mean, that song, that is another song that I have everyone listen to when I'm listening to it and I put the windows down and crank that up that's one of those songs I'm going to go deaf to love that oh, song yeah it's a great one and the, and the um, production value on everything that they have ever done is outstanding and that that song sounds killer it doesn't sound dated at all I, I think you're 100% right there that's that's one thing that Rush really stands out for is quality I mean the, the, the production values the actual music the 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 musicianship everything about rush is quality whether you like them or not it's it's kind of like i can respect a singer like celine dion for her vocal abilities do i want to listen to her no but i can definitely respect it so even if you're not a big rush fan there's no denying the respect that they each of these great musicians should be given definitely all right so for my big four I've mentioned in the past that uh, that I'm a bigger fan of of uh, instrumentals than than uh, the Dean is, and that would be YYZ for number four. It's it's always been a song that stuck out. I didn't know the story uh, behind it as well until this year, but I, I that's that only makes the song better to me. Oh, it's such uh, a cool story. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting and I, I love that that's kind of incorporated into the, the fabric of it. So it's a really cool song, a uh, great instrumental, uh, for number three, 
I don't know if this is a cheat because it's kind of a, a multi-part song, but 2112. It's the whole first side of that album. It's it's what you would call movements of a song. So it is still one song, but it's it's got several parts to it. It's really complicated and interesting and it's it's one of my favorite album covers from Rush too. It's just it's there's so much about it that I love. And and this is one of those songs that at 20 minutes it never I never lose interest in it. So definitely number three for me. Uh, number two is Tom Sawyer. So your number one is my number two. And it, there's, you know, I don't think I can really add much to what you said. It's, it's one of those songs that when you hear it, you just get into it. And I, I, I absolutely love this song. And it's, it's my, off of my favorite Rush album, which is Moving Pictures. And then number one is also from Moving Pictures. It was your number two, Limelight. That is the first Rush song I ever heard, and that's what really made me love the band. It's a really cool story because it's kind of like self-contained within their universe as people, as as musicians, you know, living on the lighted stage. It's it's something that's been brought up multiple times in their in their career, and I can't deny that I think being the first song that I heard from them is what really kind of sticks it in my head but uh, it's it's a fantastic song oh there's and, no denying that's a great song and it it is a really good album and if you're a if you're a novice in in rush that I think that's one of the ones you should definitely start with yeah for sure I mean that that, that album is pretty damn good front to back I mean red barchetta YYZ. Yeah, that one almost made my list too, but I didn't want to make it all off of movie pictures. <laughs> I had the same thing. It's like, well, I got to pick other songs here. <laughs> but I, but I did like Subdivisions when I came out because that was pretty cool. That you know, I, I was so into MTV at the time, and that was played like crazy. Yeah. And I had to I had to learn about like songs like Closer to the Heart and Spirit of Radio that were older. Oh, I love Closer to the you Heart know, too. And they I mean, weren't that much older, that, you know. But it was it was something I hadn't heard because Moving Pictures was what i heard and it was right there you know so i think i just li- i had to be honest you know i did i didn't want to throw a, a a song off of the list because because um you know it was all from the same album i really thought about it hard in in that what do i like 2112 better than red barchetta i i, I do so that's why it's on the list and and this is kind of an oddity for me for for me to pick so many off of the same album but it is such a good album from beginning from 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 Tom Sawyer down to Vital Signs. Every song is good. Yeah, that's why you pick so many songs from that because it is such a good album. I mean, there's just no bones about it. All right, that's it for debating metal this week. Be sure to tune in next week, episode twenty-four, when we're going head to head once again with Anthrax, Joey versus John. It's gonna be a blast. We'll also be back again with more rusty metal and freshly forged recommendations. I'm Chris Kay, and on behalf of Kenneth Dean, remember, always turn it up to 11.